Hello all and welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cine nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host, Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nick. Hello. The premise of our show is very simple. For each week, we have carefully picked two films, which we think have things in common. We shall then discuss them to find what their common traits are. One is my suggestion based on my particular area of expertise, Golden Age of Hollywood, as well as the pre-code era. And the other is chosen by my co-host, which is from their specialty, which is? Um, contemporary cinema, so from 1970s through to the current blockbuster era that we're living in. Cool. The only rule is both picks of the week have to be first time viewing for the other person. So today we shall kick off with um, Buster Keaton, Sherlock Jr. and uh, Jackass the movie. So yeah, we, 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 we're looking at the Playhouse and, and Sherlock Jr. Um, now, my previous experience with uh, Buster Keaton is... Primarily, um, just the general uh, was the only Keaton film I'd seen previously. Um, so this was kind of me delving into like a bit more of his work. Um, and the Playhouse, I think, came was one of his like early ones, if I'm if that's correct. Yes. So the Playhouse was a 1922, uh, during which he was suffering from a broken leg. Which is why in the playhouse you will see less um, dangerous stunts. Um, so yeah, it, he was tr- the reason he tried to sort of play around with the camera, and you ha- you see all those uh, sort of um, camera tricks and like over overexposure um, and overimposed. Uh, it's because he was trying to avoid jumping around and sort of falling down. Um, as he usually did um, but yeah this is one of his shorts and uh, it's my favorite short because um, like I said it has all those um, camera trickery and, and more creativity in terms of um, mechanics rather than just falling around and just having the um, the, the spectacular stance that he's us- usually doing in his films um, yeah so like um, with the playhouse, I thought that the first, you know, six, five, six minutes of the the, the short um, was the better part of the film. Um, so like he is, like he's playing the every, he's playing every part. So he's like the kind of like the every man. This is just him in 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 this in this short. Um, so it's I'd be really interested to know how how this plays along with his actual star persona but with with the playhouse like that first five six minutes of him playing every part um is you know in in drag like you see um like at one stage there is about like seven different bluster keatons on the stage which i mean for for the early 20s i mean that is really technologically impressive um like it it, yeah the 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 minstrel's performance i mean it, it was very very impressive uh yeah so um i think the first man who did that must have i think if i'm correct in thinking that it was uh, georges Méliès, 
the French director because he was he was uh, more of a magician. But um, yeah, it was quite a quite an achievement, and he worked with uh, with his cinematographer and art director um, in in achieving that. Um, to answer your question regarding the star persona, I think he he didn't actually think about that too much. He was trying to do something that was a bit more out of character of, for him because he wasn't able to do he wasn't able to use his body in the same way as he did before, uh, which is why he he moved towards a technical aspect of of his craft. Um, but um, he still had the imagination um, at his disposal, and he was he, yeah he was quite a technical person. Um, he said before that if he hadn't been in um, a stage because he started in vaudeville, if he hadn't been a stage performer and an actor, director, a writer, he probably would have been a uh, civil engineer. Um, but yeah, um, it, he also, in this film, he kind of made, made fun of, um, I don't know if you remember that scene where he looks at the programme and everything in the programme is, is Buster Keaton. And he laughs and says, "Oh, this Buster Keaton must be the whole show." Basically, he's he's a bit of a tug-and-cheek uh, jab at um, those contemporaries, namely mm, Chaplin, um, who always take credit for everything that has to do with the production, because Chaplin was the writer, director, composer, actor, and whatnot. So that was kind of a, a tug-and-cheek sort of like a uh, jab at it. So yeah, the 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 technological aspect of, of of the playhouse I thought was the, that first like six minutes or so. I I mean, I I I kind of almost don't want to know how it was done. Um, just to kind of preserve that that movie magic. Um, and um, I thought when the film when the film kind of switches from from that dream. So like that sequence, it turns out to be a dream. Uh, Keaton wakes back in reality when in actual fact he's kind of a stagehand sleeping in a fake bed um it's kind of like a a lot of it, it just feels like a a fourth wall kind of a thing that he's got going on um which i mean we'll we'll get into when 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 we talk about sherlock junior um some of the gags are quite funny um the punch clock the punch clock gag um where it says punch clock and he punches the clock i mean it's very simple but it's it kind of it it just works it it feels um it's a very very simple kind of slapstick comedy thing um and then the, anything to do with the mistaken identity with the twins uh was was quite impre- was was quite funny um the there are like when i say like the the second half like the the second part of the film kind of didn't work for me um i just i don't know i i kind of enjoyed almost the dreamlike aspect of, of the first sequence more um which again i mean we can probably get into it now but talking about sherlock jr the, the, the what happens with that film um it like yeah the, the the dream aspect of sherlock jr i feel is is much more impressive like he kind of builds on what he did in the playhouse and it does it even more so in sherlock jr yeah, that's that's exactly what I sort of suggested watching both of these films. Uh, first and foremost, because Sherlock Jr. is only forty-five minutes long, um, and it kind of uh, you could you could watch Sherlock Jr. and um, with the Playhouse and kind of make sense of of 
Keaton's genius as, as a director and writer um, because I think he had quite a bit of a streak of surrealism in him and, and sort of having that dream idea and sort of living in a dream world. Um, so yeah, with, with Sherlock Jr., I think, funnily enough, is not one of his considered his best films, the general is, um, because of all the technical, like the, the magnitude of like the, the chase. And I mean, you've seen the general, you see every, how much he puts into just one gag and how he elaborately builds on that one, one particular gag. Um, but yeah, with Sherlock Jr., I find it. I found it that it was quite intricate, and how he sort of builds on the the idea of of a dream world, and and how sort of yeah, how absurd it it becomes. He takes it to the max, and he also sort of builds up on his sort of vaudeville days. So because in Sherlock Jr., you see some of the um, the tricks that he pulls are part of the vaudeville days that he's. He's, he knows from um but yeah so what did you think of Sherlock Jr um yeah so I thought with um Sherlock Jr is that comparing it with the general is is quite unfair because they're two different films um so the general is a lot more about the set pieces and the the grand spectacle so the fact that it ends with this massive train crash whereas with Sherlock Jr it's a lot more simpler it's a lot more based around sight gags and and um, the simplicity of, of the sequence. Um, so the example I can think of is when he's falling asleep as the, the cinema projectionist um, and he becomes a part of the cinema screen and the landscape changes and he, he kind of becomes this, like, the butt of the joke. You know, he, he always kind of looks fed up of being in this situation. So, like, he's he's tortured by the filmmaker for, for the amusement of the audience um, like there's all this, this the fourth wall breaking, uh, like the change between the changing of the sequences, um, very much reminded me of um, Duck and Muck, the the Looney Tune cartoon, uh, where the animator, which is revealed to be Bugs Bunny, you know, tortures Daffy Duck. Um, the similarities between the sequences is that there's almost like a lunacy and like the interactions between the sequence, the between these little scenes are, are almost cartoonish. Um, and it kind of reinforces the element that it's the film within the film that he is dreaming of being the world's greatest detective. Um, you know, his if the heroes, much like the playhouse, you know, his journey, his hero's journey is is through the eyes of his of his dreams, almost. Um, yeah. So this leads me on to my uh, sort of my next comment about Sherlock Junior because in in the dream sequence he saves the day and he saves the girl. And everything uh, turns out great because of him and his incredible uh, detective abilities. But what happens in real life? The, the, the female character is the one to, to save, um, which honestly, <laughs> like, I was really quite, I wouldn't say surprised by, but I wasn't expecting it. Um, it was really honestly refreshing to see a film where like, that early on um you know in an early cinema that a female character with with such agency and such character like you know she is responsible for the the events unfolding in the reality of the film rather than the dream sequence um and you know i didn't think this was something that was so present in in early cinema um which i think just 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 goes to show how little i know 
and how much I've got to learn really I think I think but um what um what I think Buster Keaton does through both of these films is that you know he lives through through the movies and and the movies themselves are, are the inspiration and the art form that you know us as the audience and us as the spectator you know we they help us to dream and to succeed and I think he understands that um through both of these films yeah i'm 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 happy that you said that because I think that's what he does he, he he's very good at sort of capturing the essence of of life in general and just like um being quite spontaneous as well um he ha he was famously uh saying that he he never worked with with the full script so he they had the start of the film and they had the ending and the middle would i'm quoting here it would just literally take care of itself. So um, it was interesting to see the middle of, of Sherlock Jr. where everything unfolds in the dream scene. But again, with the use of the camera, it becomes quite spectacular in itself and, and surreal and quite abstract to see that um, he, he kind of goes into the movie and the movie sort of does its thing around him and transports him uh, on the top of a mountain and um, in the middle of the ocean and in the lion's den and whatnot. And I, f I thought that was fascinating. Um, not to mention the, the sort of the, the big chase sequences uh, who are quite like daredevilish in themselves. Um, but yeah, uh, it's my favorite. Um, it's my favorite Buster Keaton film, uh, even though I can I can never um, speak highly enough of all these other films as well. Nineteen of all these other silent films, we we'll should leave we shall leave the uh, talkies for another uh, for another day. Um, but yeah, I just yeah, it's it's my favorite film, and I must also say that whoever wants to see it properly, um, I I cannot recommend the uh, score of the club foot orchestra enough uh, i believe that's the the only way to see this film um in silent days um most films did not have a proper score that was composed straight just for for that particular film uh i think it was in the early 90s that the club foot orchestra composed this score particularly for this film and i think it fits perfectly well with um with the zaniness and the craziness that you see on screen and like the sort of surrealist abstract um nature of of Buster and of his work and I think yeah that's the only only way of seeing this uh, I actually wrote a, a, a short um post about about Sherlock Jr and how it's meant to be seen with this with this core um, but yeah, sh um, if you haven't got anything else to add re with regards to uh, Buster Keaton, should we move on to Jackass the movie? Yeah, so I mean, like a good kind of transition between the two is that, you know, I said that Keaton is, is kind of showing that, you know, movies are an inspiration that the spectator could kind of, you know, use. Um, whereas... Um, kind of brings us into a film where you should not look for inspiration and not repeat um, <laughs> what is being portrayed on screen. It's quite funny though, because I was, I've just, uh, I think it was just a couple, just before we had the massive lockdown, I went to see uh, the latest Buster Keaton documentary, which was, um, I think, written and directed by Peter Bogdanovich. 
and he inter- he interviewed all these uh, massively famous people, and they were all talking very highly of Lester. Among them uh, was, of course, uh, Johnny Knoxville, who is the brains behind Jackass, the movie, the TV show, and the pop culture. Can we say that? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 Jackass didn't, I mean, it very much, uh, it, I wouldn't say Johnny Knoxville was responsible for Jackass, um like it's his brainchild it's it was more of like it kind of originated with what he wanted to do so um when he started off in in the late 90s um in LA you know he was you know self proclaimed whoring himself out for anything and everything just to pay for pay bills um and you know he had this idea that he wanted to subject himself to um testing self, uh, various different types of self defense equipment um so we're talking pepper spray stun gun taser and then a 38 caliber gun with a bulletproof vest um no what's quite funny is that no uh no respectable newspaper wanted to touch it for liability reasons um whereas this skating um skating magazine uh which is where the director jeff tremaine uh worked as an editor um they they wanted to do they wanted to take it on so it kind of even though johnny knoxville never did anything to do with skating he ended up working for big brother doing a lot of these kind of like skits and and stunt videos as part of big brother and then you know the the kind of the crew kind of grew out from there um spike jones who um who you know um worked with uh the skateboarding scene back then in the 90s uh well the early 90s you know he he and jeff tremaine and johnny knoxville tried to shop around this idea of what a big budget or bigger show could be to sell it to tv networks um and they ended up at, at, at mtv um three seasons and then they were kind of unceremoniously cancelled after the third season um and then they brought them back um for this kind of farewell movie but what happened was with a budget of five million dollars which is literally next to nothing for a cost of a movie it made um well it made 79.5 million worldwide um so it was a huge success and obviously mtv and the jackass guys just wanted to keep doing it so you know they did the the following two sequels um it is really interesting that the success of the tv series kind of led on to this this movie and you know i mean hopefully we're going to be getting a fourth one in in 2021 um from what i've heard so hopefully not it'd be really i i really hope so um it'd be really interesting to know what you think of jackass um obviously my my opinion is going to be a lot different because i grew up watching it and um i very much i hold on to it in terms of my teenage uh years um but yeah so it'd be really interesting to know what you think yeah so i uh have a couple of notes on on this um i kind of knew what to expect because i was somewhat familiar with with the concept of of jackass and what they did i knew that they were inspired by stuntmen and 
by um, maybe not investigating directly when I knew about them, but I knew they were inspired by like daredevilish feats of. Um... So um, I'm going to start uh, with uh, my notes on, on, on all these sketches, if you will. Some of them reminded me of Monty Python. Some of them were uh, incredibly silly. Uh, so the rental car smash um, sketch, which is uh, the premise is basically you just you rent a car, you smash it and then you return it and you basically the laugh is seeing people's reaction when you do not want to pay for the damages incurred on, on the car. Yeah, it reminded me of the parrot sketch where you where you you come back and then, yeah, you know, it's the absurdity of like, well, this parrot is dead um, and I don't want to pay for it. Um, the the golf prank was quite funny. Um, I, I found it a bit funny, yeah. So that was... That's, that's, the, that's the air horn one, yeah? Yes, yes, yeah, the air horn. Um, the the Japan Japan party is the guy with with a um, big bass music laughing and singing and dancing on the street almost naked, which I found a bit like quite cringe. That was uh, Chris Pontius uh, in in Japan. Yeah, that's very much um, one of the skits carried over from the TV show. Yeah, um, kind of dated a little bit. Yeah, um, I just it, it it seemed a bit pointless to me and a bit cringe, like a bit more than super cringe. It was just like I didn't need to see that much skin. Um, yeah, it was just a bit. Um, fireworks um, up the ass. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I thought it was just a bit dumb, like a bit more than just dumb. Um, the fireworks in the car, I thought that was super cruel, uh, waking people up at four in the morning. Um, at the same time, I can understand why they would like to be cruel to people they know because they can't, they, they can get away with it, I suppose. Uh, overall, there were lots and lots of, of toilet humour and I made a note that I suppose that sort of humour never gets old, considering that even Mozart loved poop and fart jokes. A bit plebeian, but uh, it's been proven to have a long-lasting effect, so I think everyone has a bit of it. I mean, even even Bridesmaids, which was sort of a film aimed at the female sort of audience, has um, some toilet humour in it. Um, yeah, something that was quite difficult to watch was the yellow snow cone uh, sketch and the um, wasabi snort that was yeah I, th I thought that was a bit too much uh, lots of gratuitous pain mousetrap wedgies target practice pole vaulting uh, I can go on forever uh, hitting by hit, being hit by a shop shopping cart um, it was again it was kind of reminded me of of um, a Monty Python sketch, the, like the fish slapping dance, but like just, but a bit going again, a bit going too far. Um, the two sketches that I laughed at the most were the uh, alligator in the house because it it the reaction was quite funny, and 
it was it didn't feel like it was dangerous but the people's reaction was quite funny i mean i think it was mum who, who, who uh, one of the mothers of the of the boys who did it and of course the last one was it the last one um the uh one of the boys puts a toy car up his bum uh, and the funniest thing about it is the doctor's reaction and how they think that um, the the gang have had orgies or drug adult orgies. Uh, so yeah, overall there were some funny bits that I didn't expect um, to enjoy. Uh, but I don't think I would like to repeat that experience again and I'm definitely not interested in watching the sequels however many there will be. But um, it was an interesting experience and I'm glad to see that uh, some of Buster Keaton's uh, legacy still lives on, even though it's a strange format. <laughs> yeah, um, you pretty much hit the nail on the head with, with kind of my thoughts. Um, like the, So I, for me personally, I find the, the simpler sketches kind of work a lot better than the more elaborate ones. Um, so obviously the elaborate ones we're talking the... Uh, rent a car crash derby um you know the payoff of that was it's almost kind of too small for what it got it got um whereas stuff like jumping on a trampoline into a moving ceiling fan um the the tidal wave um and you know the the golf course air horn i mean and, and again like the the kitchen sequence with with bam's mum the whole premise behind it is to get bam's mum to say the f word um on on the move you know in in the movie um her reactions were, were fantastic um and yes i mean i struggle with the wasabi snooters and the yellow snow coon um very very much struggle with those and if you struggle with them i very much advise you stay away from certain sequences in number two and number three um it is quite interesting rewatching it how kind of almost um i wouldn't say oblivious the audience is but but i kind of didn't know how dangerous some of the stuff actually was as an like watching it now as an adult compared to when i was a teenager so an example being um the butterbean sketch where johnny knoxville gets knocked out um it's it's brutally funny um really watching it because watching johnny knoxville getting punched it, you know he it's it's quite funny but you you hear him snoring on the ground and it wasn't until like doing a little bit of reading for this that i found out that it wasn't actually him snoring it was where he was almost kind of swallowed his tongue which is ex really bad news i mean um the sequences where the golf course um the golf carts going up against the ramp and and kind of nearly crushing johnny knoxville you know that these are all things that could literally go horribly wrong. You know, the fireworks stunts as, as well. They could all go horribly wrong very, very quickly. Yeah, it just reminded me of uh, how I was reading someplace that Buster Keaton had every bone in his body broken at a given point in his career. Um, during the sh um, shooting of Sherlock Jr., uh, I don't know if you remember the scene where he's... Um, where he's shadowing his man closely and he's sort of following the, 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 the bad guy around. 
and then he ends up on the top of a moving train and then he has to grab onto the water spout and then which sort of he grabs the water spout and then water comes out and he bangs his head against the rails that he breaks his uh, his neck and he doesn't actually feel it because we see the scene and you see him coming down and you see him on the ground and then he comes out and he looks at the water spout but you don't see, so he's moved from that but and then about 10 years after that scene he goes to the doctor and the doctor says to him when did you break your neck and buster says well i'm known i never broke my neck what are you talking about well he says here on the x-ray that you broke your neck about 10 years ago and it healed but it didn't heal properly um and then he kind of remembered that after that scene he had a massive massive headache for a while for a while and he tells this to the doctor and the doctor said well that might, might have been it so he had all these things that he was so um, impervious to pain that he just didn't even think about it anymore. He was just like, well, it's just another day. So, yeah, that sort of level of danger is, is I think it's, it's the adrenaline of having to do something like that and enjoying it. It's just something that you just you don't even think about it. You might think about it later on. I mean, famously in um, the uh, Steamboat Bill Jr., he had, I mean, that is like the most famous sequence in, in whole Buster Keaton's career, which has been replicated even by the uh, Jackass people and by Jackie Chan, uh, where the uh, the whole front of the house is falling on top of him. And I think you know something that happened to Johnny Knoxville. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you really, uh, so yeah, the, the Steamboat uh, Bill Jr. thing with the, the house falling on top with, with Johnny Knoxville, you know, re recreated it. Um so if you if you if you kind of recall this the actual the actual sequence of the whole front of the house kind of falls and keaton's kind of stood in this exact spot where the window kind of it kind of just falls straight through him missing him completely jackie chan's done it um he recreate uh knoxville uh recreated the sequence in in jackass in jackass 2 um but they're in their version one of the the instances of her, their version um the his head went through the window um and his whole body kind of got smashed um so like he kind of was positioned in a way where his head was okay but his body wasn't um and somehow miraculously kind of got unharmed through doing that um yeah he, he kind of has that has that habit of almost dying through through stupid stupid skits <laughs> but yeah uh yeah Buster Keaton was um was left unharmed but it, it could have gone terribly wrong and uh because that was a it was I think it was a two-ton um house that kind of fell all around him um yes yeah, so that was what yeah it was one of the most famous scenes in in his career cool so my um Overall impressions on Jack as the movie was that um, it's definitely of a certain era for me. Um, it's very much because I grew up with MTV as well, but and but not to the extent of watching it every day and watching um, the the shows they produced every day. But it did it did bring me back to the nineties. Um, I know the film was released uh, in two thousand one. 
but yeah, it just I think it's of a certain era. Some of it, some of the humor I don't think has aged, but some of it I I, I find it a bit dated. Like I said, yeah, I don't think I will uh, hurry up to see the second, third, and fourth, and however many they they want to make. But um, I enjoyed it slightly more than I thought I would. I'm re- I'm re- I'm actually really glad to hear you say that. I was worried when kind of position put towards Jackass as being the companion piece to to Buster Keaton that it would have got a, quite a lot of pushback and there would have been a lot of hatred directed towards me for making you watch something so juvenile um and clearly and clearly not of of high art status um but i think i think for me watching jackass it it brings it back to when i was a teenager and me and my mates would do stupid shit um so i mean this is a confession live on the podcast but when i was about 13 14 uh, late at night in a Lidl's car park we decided to uh um get into a shopping trolley and ram the shopping trolley into the curb of the car park and go flying into bushes and trees because it was a funny thing to do um so yeah like we as teenage teenage boys and we we did some stupid shit and it's kind of amusing to see grown grown men kind of never grow out of that and and just make a lot of money out of it boys will be boys boys will be boys and i will never not find ryan dunn shoving a toy car up his ass funny um made i mean it's one of the last the last thing i kind of want to say is um on this is that over the credit sequence you have this son of jackass sequence where all the members of jackass are dressed up in old age makeup and they all get periodically killed off um the joke at the end is that steve-o um was the one that they thought was going to die first he's the one that survives um you know this this massive set piece sequence and you see ryan dunn in in old age makeup and you know he gets blown up and stuff but we're watching Jackass the movie, and then the, the I, you know, I went back and watched the sequels and some of the TV show skits. You know, Ryan Dunn was very much the the kind of the heart of the group, um, and what with his death in that car crash, um, it's it, it kind of feel like they lost something. They lost an element of what Jackass is, um, because he kind of did the skits that really no one else would want to do because they were so stupid um you know steve-o didn't want to do the car up the bum bit because of his dad would disown him whereas ryan dunn was like yeah fuck it i'll do it um (laughs) and then immediately regrets it um so it'd be interesting to know how they cope with how they kind of cope with without having him as part of the main group in, in that fourth movie that's coming out um, that's that's really all I've I've got left to say is that um, about about Ryan Dunn and the Jackass crew really. Cool. Um, well, thank you for making me watch that. <laughs> and uh, next week um, we shall be talking about. So next week, next week we'll be talking about um, 2006's uh, Miami Vice, uh, directed by Michael Mann, and the. 
Michael Curtiz film Angels with Dirty Faces, um, which came out in 1938. Um, so yeah, a bit of a noir tinge, kind of going a bit, bit more serious territory next week. Um, so yeah, um, thank you everybody for listening. Um, you can find uh, me on Twitter at uh, Nick S Chandler and on my website at superatomovision.com and I'm on Twitter at Kino Joan and on um, my website is kinojoan.co.uk you can email us um, with any feedback any suggestions uh, for films to cover um, on kinotomic at gmail.com please please rate us and review us on iTunes on Spotify on Google Podcasts whatever you're listening through um, it'll really really help us out to kind of get this out there to, to a wider audience um, so yeah thank thank you everybody for listening um, I hope to catch you all next week and it's a goodbye from me goodbye from me too thanks for listening see you next week